Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. Before we get started today, just a quick plug for Linux Matters, a new podcast in the Late Night Linux family. This is hosted by Poppy, Wimpy, and Mark, formerly of the Ubuntu podcast. I mean, it's basically a reboot of the Ubuntu podcast, but don't tell them that. Without the Ubuntu stuff in it, it's totally different. It's definitely not a reboot. Uh, anyway, yes, so check it out, linuxmatters.sh. Or if you're already subscribed to the All Episodes feed, then you'll get it automatically. Or if you're a patron, you'll get it automatically because it's part of the family now. But yeah, do check it out, Linux Matters. I've got a question for you that is shamelessly stolen from Linux Lads episode 100. So thanks the Irish for this. <laughs> Slancher. Is the idea of lightweight Linux outdated? As in, hardware is so fast now that you don't pick something like i3 or XFCE or Mate for speed. You pick it because of the functionality of it. And I don't think there's much difference between GNOME and, say, XFCE or i3 in terms of the actual experience these days, unless you're using terrible, terrible old hardware. Am I just spoiled by good hardware, or are we there yet? Are we at a point where hardware is just caught up and any Linux is just basically the same experience? I probably have a slightly different view on this to the rest of you, in that I think hardware probably has caught up. So I mentioned before that I've got this Lenovo IdeaPad 3i, so it's a pretty low spec but modern Linux tablet. So it's a Celeron CPU, eight gigs of DDR4 and EMMC storage. So by modern standards, pretty low end, but it's by no means an old crap piece of hardware. And I run full Ubuntu 22.04 with the GNOME desktop on that. And once I've turned off animations, to be honest with you, it's absolutely as usable as something like XFCE is on the same machine. When you say you turn off animations, do you do that because you don't like the animations or because they're slow? They're a little bit slow, but generally I turn them off on most machines anyway, just because I don't want to wait two seconds for a window to minimize just because it looks nice. I guess they're a little bit slower on that machine than they would be on perhaps my main ThinkPad, which is an 11th gen Core i7, but I think it'd probably be bearable with them on, to be honest. Yeah, I think what you've described there, Gary, is where you need to be for the difference to not really kick in. Like I've got machines less than that. And I would say that, yeah, anything less than eight gigs of RAM, you do start to notice the difference, but it is becoming less common. Although some machines you can still walk in and buy, they have four gigs of soldered RAM with no additional slot. If you go to the really low end. Really? Still? Yeah. It's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. But they are at the very cheap end. And they're running Windows. And I'm sorry that Windows on four gigabytes of RAM is, people are going to be taking those back, surely. Well, Microsoft make a Surface Go with four gigs of RAM and the same <laughs> seller on that my machine has. And they shouldn't. Yeah, they absolutely shouldn't. And they ship it with Windows 11 somehow. <laughs> Every manufacturer is guilty of this, I think. Yeah, most of them have got a machine that's way lower spec than it should be. Because if you dip under the eight gigabyte threshold, then you do start to notice. I think the RAM thing is the thing that's left. When it comes to sort of thrashing I.O., that doesn't really affect the lightweight nature of Linux, whether you're running XFCE or GNOME or anything. Once that starts happening, you just start to notice it on lower-end hardware. Like EMMC, it's come along since it first started. It is still 
sort of an SD card soldered to the motherboard, but they do tend to hit about 200 megabytes per second these days on stuff that's coming out brand new. So it's not that bad. It's better than Rust was, and it's sort of SATA 2 levels. So it's all right. And then when it comes to CPU, I don't think any of the, when we're talking about just a distribution that you boot, I don't think any of them suddenly peg it unless you get caught in a horrible blue Akinadi whirlpool that sometimes Plasma can just do if it feels like it. But in general, we're nearly there, but I wouldn't say we should just say everyone's fine. They've all got eight gigs of RAM and and the specs that Gary described. Exactly. I think that the eight gigs of RAM thing is like you kind of the limiting factor. There are definitely machines with less out there and without ZRAM to compress some of that, with the additional performance loss that you get from compressing your RAM, you can't run Firefox or Chrome on 4 gigs of RAM super well, unless you keep it to one tab, and then if you load up a video, yikes, you're going to have problems. Well, isn't that the key here, that it's not about the operating system and it's not about the desktop environment, it's about the applications. And realistically, you're not going to have a good time running heavy applications on terrible, terrible old hardware. And so people surely aren't. I know people are going to write in and say, I'm using this 32-bit netbook from 2008 and it runs fine with (laughs) half a gig of RAM. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that's always been my experience is that it's fine. You can get the operating system, the desktop environment up and running and GNOME is even fine. But the second you start opening Chrome or Chromium or Firefox and then 10 tabs, that's when it all just falls to bits. Yeah, that's the experience I've had with this tablet. Say, so, yeah, I can boot Ubuntu twenty two oh four absolutely fine. The GNOME desktop is nice and responsive. And to be honest with you, for basic stuff like connecting to my VDI or you know, browsing the web, watching just about ten eighty p YouTube, outputting to an external display, it's all okay. But it's when I try and do some of those more mainstream business type applications, say I'm thinking things like I've got a couple of tabs open with Google Docs or Google Sheets, or I'm trying to do a video call. That's when it really, really starts to chug. But equally, it's going to do that under XFCE. It's going to do that under Plasma as much as it does it under GNOME. I still have some machines here that have four gigs of soldered RAM. They're kind of hand-me-downs or Frankenstein computers that are in the stack of laptops because I can't work out what to do with them. You boot GNOME on that, and really it's only GNOME. I'm sorry to single it out, but that is the only one now that I would boot and still feel. Now, again, we'll probably get people writing in saying, no, 44 is incredible. It uses like one megabyte of RAM when you boot it. That's (laughs) fine. I'll, I'll happily test it again. That's fine. But my experience to this point on those machines has been that's the only one left. Like with Plasma, I think Plasma has become incredibly light. I think for ages, people used to beat on it a bit. I know Wimpress sometimes gets on his high horse because these blog posts appear. RAM usage of the Linux desktop environments in whatever year, and the metrics are skewed because it's in a virtual machine or they're not reading the output of what is free and what is cached, etc. But Plasma now, for, for ages on those charts, it will be higher, but it's very svelte now. You know, it's comparable to Mate and XFCE, whereas there is a slight creep up with GNOME. And as I say, I haven't tried 44, so please don't throw bits of your beard at me. Don't at me. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we're nearly there, but I'd hate to see a a time when 
people with four gigs of soldered RAM are just like, nah, that's e-waste. I think two gigs, that's definitely got there. It is really hard to use a machine with two gigabytes of RAM, even with a lightweight environment. I know the whole point of this conversation is what is a lightweight environment, but there's not much you can do unless you start really going down the shaving off stuff. Because you load a browser, even in X <laughs> with no desktop environment, two gigabytes is just not enough once you start doing basically anything. That's really fun because when I was working with Ubuntu Touch, we had a lot of devices with two gigs of RAM or even one gigabyte <laughs> of RAM. <laughs> and obviously, if you start opening stuff up in the browser, it starts to throw away your old applications and they need to be restarted. But I guess I don't know how we got here. And I also don't understand to this day how Ubuntu Touch actually managed to run right on those low-end things. <laughs> Canonical had some black <laughs> magic inside of it at some point. I mean, it doesn't feel like that long ago to me where my main machine still had three gigs of RAM. But I think that's probably more the passage of time than anything else. Yeah, I mean, Chromebooks were being sold brand new with two gigs of RAM and were usable. I, I bought a number of them for a time, but we're going back four or five years. And I do think there has just been the creep of progressive web apps and and Chromebooks. You know, people are like, oh, we can just dump this in the browser because there's a large market share of people that will only be able to access this platform in this way. So we're going to put our shoulder into it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if I was just running kind of standard desktop apps that were either Qt or whatever, then I'd be fine. It's when I start throwing Electron apps or when I start opening a browser and opening progressive web apps, it's really the problem. I don't think I'd particularly hesitate to give someone who wasn't connecting to the internet and was just using LibreOffice and a few offline apps a machine with two gigs still. Mm. I think that probably would be okay. On the bright side, Linux is still infinitely better than Windows in this regard. Mm -hmm. I tried to use Discord in Windows on my Surface Go, the first generation, the other day. And even just loading up the text chat function took a few seconds per chat. And trying to join a voice, like, forget it. But I installed Linux on it. I installed Bodhi. We'll get to that. And Chromium opened basically instantly, and I could actually use the apps and get on Discord, and all of this stuff actually worked. So still, way better than Windows. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Servermania. Go to servermania.com slash LAD to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. Servermania has over two decades of experience building high-performance infrastructure hosting platforms for businesses globally. They offer a wide range of fully customizable dedicated cloud, co-location, and IP transit services, and free initial consultations. Servermania offers a 100% uptime SLA with some of the best bandwidth pricing in North America on network speeds of up to 20 gigabits per second in nine locations worldwide. With Servermania, every customer receives a dedicated account manager, free 24-7 live chat and support, with one of the quickest response times in the industry. So go to servermania.com slash LAD to find out why my friend Alan Jude has been a Servermania customer for over five years. Use the promo code LinuxAfterDark to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. That's servermania.com slash LAD and promo code LinuxAfterDark. Let's do some feedback then. Gibson wrote in to say, You discuss lots of approaches to taming Windows telemetry on the latest show, but you miss my personal favorite. O and O shut up 10 plus. Catchy name. 
It's a single UI to display all of the window settings and registry keys you might want to flip, and even provides a button to set all of O&O's recommended defaults. It's freeware, not open source, unfortunately, but being able to make a Windows install sane in under a minute is wonderful. For me, the not open source is a deal breaker. If I'm giving something root on my machine, even if it's a Windows machine, and we'll ignore the fact that the OS is full of crap anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to give it root and give it permission to execute random PowerShell scripts and add stuff to the registry if I can't actually see what it's doing in the background, unfortunately. Yeah, I tend to treat my Windows installations as not really part of my mainstream computer life. So rather than trying to strip all of that out, I'm like, right, this is a bit of a mucky JPEGs moment. I have to use this. So I'll just do it and then feel ashamed afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they've never interested me, these stripping tools, but I am in the fortunate position where professionally and personally, I get to daily drive Linux. If I had to use Windows a lot more, I would be looking into this. But yeah, it is a bit difficult that it's proprietary software fighting proprietary software. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, for me, any Windows machine that gets network access in my house is on a guest VLAN with client isolation. And it doesn't get signed into any of my usual accounts. It doesn't have access to anything other than just the internet. So, uh, yeah, I kind of am in the same boat as you, Chris. I just don't yep. bother. If it wants to send telemetry on like the one or two things I do on Windows, which at this point is just the OBD reader for my car, then it can go ahead. What about you, Dalton? Are you going to install this then? Well, as a Windows user, absolutely not. <laughs> I really don't like tools like this. When I was doing Windows administration for the school, I used a script called Tron, which was a PowerShell script that stripped out all of the like pre-installed apps on Windows 8 and uh, then on 10, all the AppX stuff. But that was as far as I was going to go with it. Uh, I also set the group policies to turn off telemetry, but that's slowly started working less and less through the years. I feel like things like this are just designed to break your installation in the same way that we say, don't break Debian and don't break Ubuntu. This feels like the same thing for Windows. Is this like the PPA of the Windows world? The PPA of the Windows world. Yeah, that's got a good ring to it. Yeah, you reminded me, Dalton, actually, that the one thing I do do to a Windows install is a get dash apex package pipe to remove dash apex package and i leave it at that <laughs> yeah i'd forgotten from my days in the trenches of residential it support the number of teenage elite gamers who had completely messed up their windows install like you click the start menu the icons were missing <laughs> loads of errors would come up and eventually i'd tease out of them that they'd done something like this and i'd be like but it's like kind of pulling bits out of a car at random because you don't like how they look and then expecting to get in it and pop to the shops and then everything starts going wrong. So. <laughs> All right, well, we've got quite a lot of feedback on the workspaces thing. Alex said, when it comes to workspaces, I think I found Sway to have the most flexible approach. You can create an independent set of workspaces that are attached to specific monitors or just switch to any workspace you want from any monitor. And Crafty said, I use i3, which seems to allow for exactly what this person was asking for, separate workspaces on each monitor. It might not be the most user-friendly option, but I just wanted to put it out there. And Jeff said, to the person asking about multi-workspaces with multi-monitors, Enlightenment Window Manager. The easiest distro with a fork of it is Bode Linux. 
I did have a quick look when I read through this feedback, and one of the the top SEO hits, at least for me, when I was searching, when you put that dilemma in, I want multiple workspaces with independent displays, is a Stack Exchange post for Enlightenment or, or Moksha, which is on uh, Bodhi Linux, to do exactly that. And it has a little ASCII demonstration of how things would change as you flip between workspaces and how they're pinned and independent. So it does seem to be a fairly popular guide. And yeah, also you've got i3 and Sway, which have configuration that you can share. And I found a Fedora magazine basic guide, which was uh, fairly good, seemed fairly straightforward. And then a Reddit post with an incredible amount of scripting (laughs) for i3 and Sway. So if that floats your boat, but I don't think I found any examples of anything else other than that, that does exactly what John was asking for. But you lot did actually try out Bodhi Linux. I asked you to spin it up in a VM and see what you thought of it. So I spun it up on my Surface Go and oh boy, it's a little rough. (laughs) I think that if you really got into it and really learned what the system was trying to tell you at all times, it might be a little bit better. But just being dumped into it as a stupid Windows user, I guess I am now. Oh boy. So some things are a little weird. It's based on Ubuntu 2004 yet, which is a little concerning at the moment. Though it's not the only boutique distro to be in that situation at the moment. But more than that, getting it set up is really difficult for some reason. Like, there aren't clock settings. You right-click on the clock that is on your desktop and go to settings from the calendar widget that pops up. And then you set the time using sliders. (laughs) I don't think I've ever set the time using sliders before. But, you know, it's just weird things like that. And, you know... When you open up the spotlight kind of thing with super and space, you type in file, it takes you to the file manager settings instead of (laughs) opening Thunar. Just awkward stuff like that. It was a rough first experience, but I could see how you could really get into that kind of mindset where it'd be very useful for my workflow. I just don't want to take the time to do it. But what about the workspaces aspect of it? It seemed to work fine. By default, it puts four workspaces on every monitor. All right. Couldn't figure out the keyboard shortcuts to switch between them, but that was just because I didn't look it up, basically. I think it's Control-Alt-Arrow keys, I think. Uh... At least that worked for me. Although I did try two iterations. I tried live booting Enlightenment uh, and also Bodhi. I I did play with Bodhi quite a lot when Chromebooks first got sort of hacked open with a custom BIOS because... At first, the hardware needed a lot of bring up. And there was a guy called Huge Green Bug that ran a site called Distro Share. And he would publish ISOs that had that bring up slipstreamed in. So you didn't have to go through it or run a script or anything. You could just install from the medium and it would do things like, because there was no EFI BIOS, a lot of the hardware was tricky in the legacy boot. So that would all be kind of slipstreamed in. And eventually that became Gallium. And eventually that's just in upstream now so a lot of that work is done but Bodhi was often recommended because the machines were quite low end and so I did play with it quite a bit then but I found it a bit like you Dalton it was taking too much work to get it from how it arrived to how I wanted it to be also this is like 2015 I'm sure I'm a bit more experienced now I could probably script some of that stuff and make it quicker but it just didn't look the way I wanted it to look 
out of the box. What I would say is Minimech, who people might know from kind of the Jupiter shows, who pops up and speaks and is in the Telegram group, he runs Enlightenment and his setup, he shared a screenshot of his multi-monitor setup and it was really, really nice. And I think if you put the effort in to make it how you like and then port those configs over, I can see why, you know, I haven't met a lot of Enlightenment users, but the ones that do use it on a daily basis are very enthusiastic about it. It's sort of the arch of desktop environments, isn't it? Do we have to have an X of Y? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think Sway is more like that personally. Yeah, true. Maybe it's the Gen 2 then. Isn't that just open box? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. At this point, I'd normally say remember for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Late Night Linux. But now it also includes Linux Matters. But also, if you only want to support this show, there's a $5 option, a $5 tier on Patreon. It's better value to pay $10 and get all four shows, but some people have asked about it, so it's there if you want it. And if you want to send any feedback or challenge suggestions or, I don't know, stuff we might want to talk about, then you can email show at linuxafterdark.net. I had a bit of a strange thought the other day and came up with a concept of digital waste. And this came from thinking about all of the YouTube videos that get uploaded that are just automated and no one's ever going to watch them and they're just sitting there on a server somewhere. All of the stuff that archive.org has on their servers all of the backups of backups of backups that I've got and probably millions and billions of other people have got, just this useless data that no one is ever going to use but is just taking up space on a hard drive somewhere or probably several hard drives somewhere. And it got me thinking about what counts as digital waste and who gets to be the arbiter of that and should we just back everything up because who knows what is going to be waste in a hundred years. Maybe these, what I consider useless, automated YouTube videos are going to have some value to someone. The thing I always think of when this discussion comes up is GCHQ, because apparently they collect an incredible tranche of data that it would be impossible to sort through. And it is how I do my backups. I have to be honest. I do try and exclude things that are clearly large throwaway wastes of space. But I do back up a load of crap because sometimes I've gone to a backup and I haven't done that. And I've gone, ah, 
I forgot that one subdirectory where I needed that one tiny text file. What a pain. Yeah, but then other times I'll be doing an rsync-r and I'll see an episode, I mean, an, a Linux ISO and think, ah, oh, why is that on that backup? And then I just can't find where it was. And it's like, right, well, I suppose that's like a gigabyte that I'm never getting back. <laughs> and you mentioned the GCHQ thing, government agencies. I mean, they are hoarding loads of encrypted data as well on the hope that one day they'll be able to crack it with quantum computers or whatever. I mean, surely that counts as digital waste, doesn't it? Because they're never going to get around to that. And you look at what happened in COVID. Google started charging for storage, I think, because suddenly there was a huge upshoot and they reached like peak storage. For ages, they were like, just chuck another hard drive at it, chuck another hard drive at it. And then they were like, oh God, what do we do now? And there has to be a peak moment for all of this, surely. Yeah, how many of those old blurry photos that are just totally useless you're never going to be able to even see what it was and that's backed up automatically to google photos and then replicated across multiple drives at what point do you just declare that to be digital waste and just get rid of it but then again that old blurry photo might be the only photo that someone has of their dog or their grandfather or someone who has passed away and even though it's blurry that person remembers what it was you can't just say well, that looks like shit. Let's just delete it. And I think the big deal is that the platform owners don't get to say what junk is junk. Basically, the only people who can say that are the people who made the data in the first place. And if they've passed away, then oh boy, I don't know what's going to happen. See, I think for me, the ultimate everyday example of this are like shared network drives in businesses. Mm. I used to work at a job where we had a team that did photography and post-production and their shared drive, bearing in mind not all of the people were using it regularly, was a 120 terabyte file server (laughs) and it was full to the brim with just utter crap. And this wasn't photos that they were actually, you know, taking in their day job or whatever. This was just common shared files where someone had gone, let's just dump it on the X drive because <laughs> it's big and that'll never run out of space. <laughs> and as the sysadmins in that situation, we were backing that up and it went from five LTO6 tapes to 10 LTO6 tapes <laughs> to 20 LTO6 tapes. And we were paying to store these all in Iron Mounted or somewhere. And one day we just kind of called it quits and said to them, we're putting a policy on this where if something isn't accessed in over five years, it's getting archived. And we had pushback and had pushback and had pushback. And eventually we spun up a second 120 terabyte file server. (laughs) We archived a crap ton of data. There was about five terabytes of data on the original file server that was actually accessed in the last five years on any regular (laughs) basis. And the other one was just sitting in a rack with crap tons of redundant data and no one would ever sign off deleting it just in case. So yeah, that was 115 terabytes just sitting there online on a box we had to patch and maintain just in case Sarah from HR decided that she wanted to access that one file on there. A lot of companies now have retention dates where they have to get rid of data that they created, basically no matter what. If it's past the IRS's like seven years and you can't be taxed for this anymore, you throw it away so they can't prove anything. 
<laughs> Some of them do it before the seven years are up in a fury by the digital shredder. <laughs> You're making me think of my Android downloads folder, which I swear hasn't had anything deleted on it since I had my first Android phone. I have just bounced that from phone to phone to phone. And I take a backup of it each time I get a new phone and I transfer the whole thing. Sometimes I look at it and go, oh, I really should sort through this. And you get to a point where you're like, I just can't be asked. I really can't be asked. But there's been a couple of times where I've got like a maintenance manual for something in there. And I go to the link and it's 404. And the Internet Archive will have a lot of HTML pages, but not PDFs. You'll click on the PDF and it's gone. And I'm like, yes, I knew there was a reason that I did this. It's like the old cables thing, isn't it? That meme that goes around often, like, (laughs) don't be the man that threw away all of his old cables only to need the one thing that was in there. And that's what it feels like. But stack of laptops, guys, it's the hoarder's tendency. I think think it's there. It, it, It permeates everything that we do. Yeah, I've got a couple of eight terabyte disks sitting in my safe. And I was just on the verge of going, do you know what? I haven't used these for a couple of years. I'm going to wipe them and reuse them. And then I needed a Windows, oh, sorry, an old version of Linux. And I had a really good ISO of this old version of Linux that had all of the patches and everything (laughs) on it that I needed. And I can't download those from the Linux vendor anymore. And uh, went to find the uh, torrent for said Linux ISO. No cedars anymore. Couldn't download it at all. And uh, yeah, there it was sitting on the hard drive in the safe in my house. So uh, yeah, I'm never wiping those again. And in fact, I might buy a couple of new eight terabyte drives to back those up to and put them off site. There is a whole subreddit called Data Hoarders. And quite a lot of the people on there are just keeping stuff for a rainy day. And it becomes absurd. You know, they're counting in petabytes now (laughs) how much stuff they've got just. But I remember now that it's shut down, Uh, hopefully I I say this out loud, there used to be a website called The Box and it got shut down and it was an archive of British television that would rival the British Museum. There was some stuff on there that were rips that now that it's gone, it's really, really hard to find them. So there has to be some kind of balance here. But I think what it really boils down to is curation. I mean, this is why there is such a role as an archivist, because it takes work to sort through this stuff and work out what it is that is valuable and what isn't. And that doesn't get done for a lot of this stuff. And I don't see a way that it could get done if even government spying agencies can't find a way to do it for supposedly brilliant intel on all the terrorism that's supposed to be happening every day. Maybe someday we'll all be digital librarians. Well, I'd be shit looking at my Android downloads folder. (laughs) I think I've got it somewhere in the back. Let me just dig through these 5,000 printouts of PDF manuals. Okay, so maybe you don't get to be a digital librarian, but I do. (laughs) Yeah, I think for me, if I was a digital librarian, my ripped Blu-rays are really easy to find stuff in, but everything else is just a jumble of crap on a disc. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. And I'm rewriting the Dewey Decimal System for digital data. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) 